So I have always liked to run. I don't run particularly fast. I discovered when I explored track and middle high that I was much better at the long distance events. Uh, so track, I do the mile and two mile and had a blast. I always placed at least second or third in our track meets. My best friend ran faster than me and longer than me, so she always got first, and that was okay. Uh, but I discovered that I had a gift of doing endurance kind of sports. And I know I don't look like I'm enjoying myself in that picture, but I really am. So endurance is also what I think allows me to enjoy mountain climbing as well. So taking that one step at a time, one tiny step at a time is how you get to the top of a very tall mountain. Endurance, it is defined as the power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. Or denoting or relating to a race or other sporting event that takes place over a long distance or otherwise demands great physical stamina. In other words, having the ability to patiently handle difficult circumstances over an extended period of time, and it is endurance that was what the city of Philadelphia was praised for having. So today we continue our exploration of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And so today we're going to hear the, the letter that was sent to the city of Philadelphia. Y'all, that's not Pennsylvania, right? This is, this is an ancient um, province of Asia. So a little context to remind us about what we're going to hear. Philadelphia was not only located on that, that highway that connected all seven of these cities, but it was also part of this east-west trade route, which is connected the modern-day Turkey in the west to uh, Damascus and Jerusalem in the east. Philadelphia had a very poor reputation in the sense that this city had no power, it had no clout. Of all the cities that these letters were sent to, this one was the least influential. There was no emperor worship there. There were no major Roman power centers. This community was also located on a fault line. They were earthquake prone. They had been destroyed by multiple earthquakes and they weren't always rebuilt. It sounds a little bit like California. Outside of Philadelphia, they were also known for having famous vineyards and for making great wine. See, definitely a California connection here. Notice in this picture that the only thing remaining in the church in Philadelphia are these two giant pillars or columns from the ancient ruins. But what is most distinctive about this letter is that unlike the others, there is no criticism for the Philadelphians. None. So I invite you now to hear this fifth letter, no, sixth letter, that was written to the church in Philadelphia. I'm reading from Revelation 3, chapters, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who has the key of David. Whatever he opens, no one will shut. And whatever he shuts, 
no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set in front of you an open door that no one can shut. You have so little power, and yet you have kept my word and haven't denied my name. Because of this, I will make the people from Satan's synagogue, who say they are Jews and really aren't, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and realize that I have loved you. Because you kept my command to endure, I will keep you safe through the time of testing that is about to come over the whole world to test those who live on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. As for those who emerge victorious, I will make them pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my own new name. If you can hear... Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for all God's people. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Open our ears, Lord, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Strengthen our wills that we may serve you today and every day. Amen. So imagine a series of letters written to the cities around, various cities around the United States. Can you imagine what might be the message of a letter written to both praise and critique a city like New York? Maybe Washington, D.C. would be on the list. Maybe Atlanta or Charleston or Nashville What about San Francisco and including Dallas or Chicago? Now what if one particular city was lifted up as the shining example for all the rest, the best of the best, while all of the others were levied with heavy condemnations or challenges, even though their reputation and perception that others would have would be that they're pretty impressive cities, this list that I have just named. But this one city, this one city is praised as being the best example that all should revere, the role model, that in the end, this city is the one that God loves most. Now imagine that city to be New Orleans. You know, the city for partying and for damage from Hurricane Katrina that the likes of it still haven't been fully recovered from with multiple hurricanes following, including the stress of this past weekend with Tropical Storm Barry. Yes, imagine this is the city that is praised for its endurance. This is the city God loves and embraces fully and lifts up as the example for everyone else. Sound a little weird? But 
I imagine that's what it might have felt like when all of these letters went out to all of the cities in Revelation. And for them to see that this is the one that gets praised the most, it's Philadelphia? Philadelphia? Seriously? As we just learned, this is the city that couldn't repair itself from one earthquake before another would hit. The constant tremors kept them in a state of perpetual fear. And yet the wineries nearby gave them a reputation of supplying the best social gatherings in the region. A party city plagued by ever-present natural disaster. Sounds familiar? Quincy, one of our interns who's from Louisiana, made this connection, and I deeply appreciated that. Say a prayer, by the way. She's preaching in Crossroads this morning. Typically, we would not lift New Orleans up as a role model city, but in this example, God would. The trouble in the scripture passage is that once again, Jesus is turning upside down messages of power and what is right and what is wrong. Who they thought would be their role models were not. And yet in wonderment, they turned their attention to Philadelphia to see what have they missed. Why should they even be thinking about this insignificant city? Why are they worthy of Jesus' praises? Because in verse 10 it says, They kept Jesus' command to endure. Because they have been faithful to Jesus and never denied their belief in him. Jesus says he will make those false followers, those followers in the Satan's synagogue, he will make them to see that it is the faithful of Philadelphia that Jesus loves. Philadelphia? New Orleans? Really? So I wonder who are our examples and role models that we look up to. Think for a moment of the people who come to mind that you consider to be uh, aspirational examples, folks that you are trying to emulate or to learn from. What famous people are you fascinated by? Who in your actual sphere of existence do you look up to? When I think about my own list, I certainly have colleagues that I deeply respect. They're good leaders, they're compassionate, they are deep theological thinkers. I also have some folks in my family that I would add to that list, and I hope and pray that our gene pool has worked out in a way that, that their excellent characteristics and temperament are inside of me, fingers crossed. Of course, there's famous people on my list, people that I listen to or read or watch, and therefore they influence me. But who is on your list? And what I think would be really interesting to consider is if the folks that are on our list are the same that would be on Jesus' list. If I'm being perfectly honest, I know the answer to my own list is probably no. I'm sure Jesus would do some swapping out for me. And also, when I look at the Gospels, I know there are times when I secretly empathize with the Pharisees, getting frustrated at Jesus, siding with the underdog, the outsider, the unexpected. It must have been exhausting for them, trying to make sense of Jesus with the leper, Jesus with the women, 
Jesus with the tax collectors, with the Samaritans, with the poor. Jesus lifting up the virtues of the poor widow versus the wealth contrasting with the prideful Pharisee as they are placing their offerings in the coffers. Jesus pointing out the humility of the sinful tax collector in contrast to the boasting Pharisee as they are praying at the temple. Jesus always seeing the powerful example in the seemingly powerless. Why should we be surprised that unimpressive Philadelphia is his example? The challenge for us is that we too often look at life through the lens of the powerful and not the powerless. Even though today's lesson is so affirming compared to most of these other letters, I think this one is actually difficult for us to grasp fully. Now, it's true, we have moments when we have to endure life. And as I look out across our congregation, I know I know that some of you have been really wrestling with stumbling blocks that life has presented to you. I know some of you are wrestling with cancer, a fight that you would not wish on anyone. I know that some of you are dealing with a tight grip of grief on your heart and chronic pain because of a health condition that has taught you endurance and patience like no other life lesson could. I know that some of us are living out Jesus' command to endure. But when we think about the context of the church, I also know that since about 313 AD, when Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome, the path for most of Western Christianity has been one of power and freedom and privilege. Our faith rarely causes us to suffer harm in the U.S. That is not the case, though, in other places in the world. But in truth, we struggle to understand what it might be like to risk our freedom or our life to just enter into these doors and come and worship God this morning. The Christians these letters were written to, though, did not enjoy the power and privilege being a Christian brings us. So the words in this letter to the Philadelphians offered much-needed hope. When you think about the city that lacked influence and clout, that struggled to maintain its infrastructure, what must it have felt like for them, when they hear Jesus say to them, the door will be opened and will never be closed on them, in verse 8. That opportunity would always be available to them thanks to God and not at the mercy of human leaders. Or how powerful would it be as they looked around at the lingering rubble from the previous structures that had fallen from the last earthquake and then hear that they would be like pillars in God's temple? Remember the image of the city's remains? How interesting it is to me that what does remain are those two large church pillars. To stand tall and strong in the presence of God for eternity is an honor that brings hope. And finally, we know that names are important. Knowing one another, knowing our names, so important. 
The Philadelphians are not unknown and they aren't insignificant. Not only are they known by God, but Jesus is going to give them a new name. In verse 12, he says, I'm going to give you my name, my name. The Philadelphians are recognized, loved, and honored. And my guess is they were inspired to keep on enduring and to model for others how to do it in the face of persecution and in the face of temptation to worship other gods. So the Brazilians describe a person who sticks with something with the word gara. If you look up gara in Portuguese, you would see that it means fingernails or claws. If someone has gara, he or she has nails and she hangs in there. Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. He who has gara will be saved. The Philadelphians had gara. I wonder, do we need to practice more use of gara in our lives? And what about in the life of the church? Do we need to practice more gara as part of our church community? Because it feels like the church is fighting to keep an important place in the lives of our oh-so-busy members. What used to be the center of social life so many, for so many, a generation, two, three generations ago, has become something more like making time as often as possible for us now. And what is the impact on the, the, of the church onto the larger community? Making a positive impact doesn't come easily. And friends, I am so grateful, so very grateful that Boone UMC does as much as it does to make Boone a better place to live. But in order to do that so that it doesn't fall on the shoulders of a few, we must remember the amazing possibility and power that lies within the church. So I invite you to listen to these words from James A. Forbes Jr., pastor emeritus of Riverside Church in New York City. It's a bit of a long quote, but I love the picture he paints of church. He says, the gospel calls us to count up the cost of our witness. Part of this process is the assessing of power as well. In God's grace, the church discovers that its members are not helpless victims of alien powers, but we are bearers of gifts, competencies, and influence in affecting change. Just as Moses was told to use the rod in his hand and the disciples were bidden to feed the multitude with the lunch that they had, so we are expected to use what we have. And one of the functions of the church is to help us members discover and release their power in ways that promote the cause of the kingdom. Professionals and non-professionals, trained and untrained workers, rich and poor, all, all are influencing their context either by reinforcing the status quo or by promoting change. The issue is not simply one of getting power, but of becoming aware of how we use the power we have 
and then developing expertise to make an impact on our communities for good. And then this is my favorite line. The church is the sleeping giant. What a powerful witness we could be if the parts of the body came to a new awareness of the power that is at work within and around us. What a powerful witness we could be if the parts of the body came to a new awareness of the power that is at work within and around us. I wonder, do you think this was the secret to Philadelphia's example? That they figured out how to harness the power of their community? They leaned on each other's gifts and abilities where one was struggling, another supported, and that together they were a powerful witness to the whole city and the whole region, what it meant to be a Jesus follower. Is that the message of the letter to Philadelphia to us today? To not forget the power that we have within us as the multi-gifted body of Christ, the sleeping giant in our midst, And the key to our endurance is a life filled with challenges that we respond to by linking arms with those on our left and those on our right, and that we lean on each other. Then and only then can we discover the Christ-given power that is at our fingertips, a power to use our gifts to impact around us. A power to encourage and care for, heal and stand strong in the face of storms and adversity. Then and only then can we recognize the fullness of Jesus' love for the church. A love that provides and cares for the church and its future, asking of us to strive for faithfulness and love. A love that is provided for us, asking asking in return for our faithfulness and our love. Friends, I think, I think it's time to wake the faithful sleeping giant. Boone, United Methodist Church, wake up. Wake up. Let us recognize and use the full giftedness and love and support that we have as a community to be a force for change, to be a force for God's kingdom here in our community. And all of God's children said, amen.